with me. Lord, we lift you up this morning. God, you are the one who seeks us out. God, though we have been lost, though we wander, you're the one who seeks us and carries us home. God, we worship you this morning with all that we are, with all that's going on in our lives. And we love you. morning. We are glad you're worshiping here at Trinity Community Church. And I'm just going to make a few announcements in my capacity as the director of women's ministries here. We have some important and fun events coming up. Today, right after service, there's a very short meeting, 1145 to 1215. That's as short as I could make it. And if you have a moment to stop by and give some feedback on what you would like to see for our fall retreat or anything about women's ministry generally, I would encourage you to come If you can't do that, I have a sheet that allows you to just write some feedback, and you can just leave that for me, or you can scan it or take a photo of it or whatever you want to do and get it back to me in some way. I'd appreciate that. In a couple of weeks, on Saturday, May 18th, we're going to have an afternoon tea from 2 to 4, and this is designed not only for us to come together, but also to be an event that you can invite friends, neighbors, family members, daughters Anybody to celebrate with you, or if you want to get a chance to know them a little bit better, this is a great event to encourage people to come to, so we hope you can do that. There's a sign-up in the back for the tea, and it's also online. And finally, we have an exciting event coming up on June 1st. Women's Ministry is partnering with junior high and high school ministry and children's ministry, and we're going to be providing a parenting event, Parenting for Today. And we certainly are aiming, obviously, at parents. But those of you who are considering being parents, or if you're grandparents, or if you work with children or you work with youth, we encourage any of you to come. We're going to be talking about some really important topic areas that are affecting youth today. So we'll be looking at things like discipline, spiritual shepherding, also looking at technology and the abuse of technology, and mental illness, because if you're aware, there's a lot of anxiety and depression, especially in young people. So if you can, uh, mark your calendars. There's also a sign-up out there for the parenting event on June 1st. From 9 to 11.30. At this time, we turn our attention to the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 18. You can find it on page 823 in the Red Bibles under your chair. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptation come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. My name is Mike. Today we continue on in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're doing a few weeks here that we're calling Kingdom Questions. Kingdom Questions. And the reason why is because we're in a section where the disciples just happen to be asking a whole bunch of questions of Jesus, and he's sort of answering them. Much of it is, is very practical. Last week was sort of more on the abstract side, but, but here we begin this section where we're, we're talking about what do we do about sin? Today's question is, what do we do about sin? It's actually going to be a two-part thing. Diane, could you actually pull up the illustration? A couple slides in. For a while now, there's been a movement in psychology called the self-esteem movement. It's losing steam at this time, but it was run full tilt for a while. Sometimes it's called the self-love movement. It's a movement in psychology that's based on this premise. It's based on the idea that humans, if left to ourselves, are basically good. We're basically good. But the problem is that society tells us that there's something wrong with us. And over time, what ends up happening is in a society where we're pressurized, where we have to sort of repress what's natural about ourselves, where we're often bullied, we begin to lash out and so hurt people, kind of hurt people. But at the end of the day, really, humans are very, very good. And so one of the main ways, according to this movement within psychology, one of the main ways we find healing is by coming to realize that there really isn't that much about us that needs to change. Nothing innate. Right? Maybe some outward habits, but there's nothing really deep about us that needs to change. And so we, we, we think that if we come to realize that, then our ego will be repaired and we'll become happy people. So that's the self-esteem movement. And now there is actually some good that comes out of this, right? It's true that being human is a very noble thing. It's a very, like, to be a human is an honor, right? It's also true that hurt people hurt people. And so oftentimes the very people who are lashing out are the ones that need healing themselves. All that's true, but there's also something very wrong about this basic idea. Over time, this idea that nothing needs to change about us has made some people, has helped some people become who they want to be. In some ways, it's made them more confident, capable. It's produced people who excel in life, advance in business. Sometimes they're very successful, but they're seldom very loving. They're seldom very loving. Roy Baumeister is a social psychologist. He became famous in the field of psychology because of work that he did critiquing the self-esteem movement. 
basically what he did is he was looking at all these different like scholarly articles and stuff, all claiming that this movement is working. And when he actually began to dig, what he found is that these different scholars, they would cite studies to prove that the self-esteem movement was working. And they, he'd then look up that study like you do if you're doing research, and that study would make its case by referring to another study. So he'd go to that study and look at that one to see, okay, what, where's the data? Where's the experiments? Where's all the objective stuff? And he never found any. Over time, it became clear to Baumeister that most of the researchers in the field just thought that this idea was too good not to be true. And so he began his own research. And here's what he discovered. It turns out that when you tell people that nothing needs to change about them, they are only too eager to believe it. And the results are disastrous. Why? Because people then never try to address the issues of their heart. They increasingly rule out the possibility that they could be wrong about anything, and they gradually begin to self-justify, make excuses, blame others for the problems that they themselves are causing. In other words, the self-help, the self-esteem, self-love culture is breeding narcissists. Above is an illustration by Summer Ortiz. So she's an illustrator that was commissioned to do uh, a series of illustrations for an article describing Baumeister's work. And so this is kind of how she summarizes how many of us are in, in, a, in the self-esteem culture. We are kind of sad sheep, quote-unquote sheep, refusing to acknowledge the shape of the shadow that we're casting. So we've got this boy here, kind of downcast, but a sheep, right? He's got the ears, but behind him is this, the shadow of a, of a wolf, it turns out that something does need to change about us. And when we re- refuse to acknowledge it, we become corrupted from the inside out. And that thing that needs to change about us is what the Bible calls sin. So it's no benefit to us to deny the reality of sin. It will make us into narcissists. There is something wrong with humanity. We have everything to lose in denying it, everything to gain by confronting it. And so Jesus is leading us to be the kind of people who take sin seriously. It's for our good, it's for the good of everyone around us. And just as Baumeister found, we will not be able to confront it through pride and competition, through narcissistic activity, right? But instead by kind of squaring our shoulders and taking, part, taking responsibility for our part in the darkness. That's the only way to confront it. It's for each of us as individuals to look this thing in the eye and acknowledge our own part in it. So how do we do that? What do we do about sin? What do we do about the shape of the shadow that we're casting? So this week and next week, we're, we're embarking on this longish speech from Jesus on what it looks like to take sin seriously. This week, before Jesus gets to anything practical, he wants to show us what kind of a community takes sin seriously. What does it mean to do that as a community? And then next week, he sort of shows how you do it as a community. So today, we're going to find four characteristics of a church that takes sin seriously. First, we take sin seriously by being a humble community. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18. At, the, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, 
Jesus put the child in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, that person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we've got this moment where the the disciples approach Jesus, and you can can kind of imagine that they're beginning to think like a hierarchy is forming, maybe. They just saw Peter, James, and John get taken off apart from the rest of the group and brought up onto this mountain. They experienced something crazy there, but they're not talking about it, right? And so you've got to imagine that for many of the disciples, they're starting to think like, hold up, is Jesus playing favorites? You know, they, they can recognize too that Peter is kind of operating as a leader. And so the competitive nature kicks in, right? They start to think like, well, hey, maybe I can occupy that role too, right? So they go to Jesus and they just ask him straight, Like, how do we get heard? How do we matter? How do we become validated? But what they're really asking is, how do I become somebody that other people look up to? How do I become the greatest? And notice what happens as soon as that word, greatest, is thrown into the mix. Competition starts. Like, greatest is a word that only makes sense if there's people who aren't the greatest, right? And you kind of have, like, varying degrees until you have the ones that just stink, right? And they're the greatest. So that's the only way that word makes sense is in the context of comparison. So when you think of great people, who do you think of? For me, I like to read a lot because I'm a total nerd. So I think of novelists and writers and, and essayists. So I think of like Marilyn Robinson and Michael Chabon, Jeffrey Eugenides, James Baldwin. These guys weren't just writers, right? They, they so outpaced all their peers that there, is like, there wasn't even a comparison anymore. I mean, their peers are jealous of what they accomplish because they're doing stuff with the English language that no one has done before, right? They just outpace everyone else. So maybe you think of of great sports players, like the kinds that don't just get endorsed. They have clothing lines named after them. Like Michael Jordan was so good, people want to wear his name on their person, right? I don't even know if that makes sense, but they do it because he's that good at basketball. So we hear the word greatest and we think of competition, right? Goat, greatest of all time. So the disciples are the same way. They want to figure out how to be the goat disciple, the disciple goat. They can only think of greatness in terms of being greater than someone else. Greatness for them can only be about sticking out, rising above the pack, being more competent, more interesting, more charismatic, more visible, more educated, more influential, and they have no category for what Jesus is about to tell them. Then the kingdom of heaven, those who are great, are also invisible. They have no category for what it would be like to be great and needy. Great and humble. And yet that's what Jesus tells them they have to be. So Jesus calls a a kid over to him, and he tells the disciples that they have to become like this child. Why is that weird? Why is that weird? I feel like for most of us, this verse is so deeply ingrained that we don't stop to think about strange it is that that Jesus is telling this group of adults to become like children. So you might have heard the phrase, like, a a child is to be seen but not heard, right? Or, I don't know how many of you watched the show Arrested Development, but there's this school in the show called the Milford School in which children are to be neither seen nor heard, right? So, So children, like, 
that might be extreme, even for biblical times, but actually was close. Children weren't considered important people. Not that their lives were devalued necessarily, but they didn't have anything to contribute to society, right? And so they're completely dependent on, on their parents. And we recognize this in our society, even though we kind of idolize youth in a lot of ways. A modern five-year-old, it would never occur to my son Edmund, who's turning four this month, to elbow his way into a conversation that Ashley and I are having about politics. It just wouldn't occur to him, right? Like, because he knows, just sort of instinctually, even as an almost four-year-old, that he has nothing to offer that conversation. He doesn't have enough to offer or really contribute to the household yet. And Jesus is saying that we have to view ourselves the same way. That the same amount of stuff that my son Edmund thinks he's entitled to, we should think of ourselves as entitled to that much. To have that kind of humility. If we take sin seriously, but not even that, if we take the gospel seriously, this shouldn't be a surprise to us, right? Because we should never be surprised to learn that there is something about us that needs to change. That's the base assumption of the gospel. It's why Jesus says that without becoming like children, we literally can't be a part of the kingdom of heaven. Because you can't take on the gospel until you realize you need it. You can't believe in Jesus for salvation unless you realize you need the cross. The only reason there's a cross is because there's something so broken about us that we are incapable of fixing it. We are needy, insufficient, entirely dependent. We are not competent enough or good enough or great enough to fix ourselves. In our culture, that might sound really, really harsh, right? Like, Mike, you need to love yourself, man. You're being a little bit too hard on yourself. But here's the truth. I don't have it in me. I don't have the resources of self-love within me to overcome my problems. I need love to come to me from the outside. I need a love that is greater than me and all my resources to change me from the outside. We need more than self-love. And that's what the forgiveness of God is. It's why Jesus gave his life to love us with a love stronger than self-love. And so that reality should humble us. It should humble us to realize that there is something wrong about us. And it's okay to acknowledge that. You're not doing yourself any damage by acknowledging that, right? It should humble us to realize that we are incapable of fixing ourselves. It should humble us to realize that the only way we are going to change into the people we know we should be is by remaining constantly dependent on God. And it should humble us to realize that sin, that this thing that's wrong with us is so serious that Jesus had to die to overcome it. So it's interesting, Baumeister, the the psychologist I mentioned, he talks about how he, he sort of defines a narcissist, he defines a narcissist as a person who is confident because they think nothing about them needs to change. So the reason they're confident is because they're like, I don't have anything not to be confident about, right? So he says there's another kind of population. There's another group of people who are also confident. And this is a population that's confident. They've found confidence not by denying that they need to change, but by confronting what needs to change. They didn't become confident because they believed they were perfect, but by accepting that they weren't, and so they began to do what had to be done to change. And so they take their flaws seriously, 
And as these flaws are sort of addressed, they become more confident people, but at the same time, they never lose their humility because they're constantly in touch with the fact that something about them needed to change in the first place. I think the gospel does the same thing for us. We are humbled because of our sin, but we become confident by the love of Christ. We are humbled because we can't change ourselves, but we're confident because Jesus is changing us. And Jesus says, that's what makes someone great. The greatest person in the kingdom of heaven would never think to ask, how do I become the greatest? Right? They would be self-forgetful. It wouldn't even occur to them. The gospel turns competition upside down. So we take sin seriously by being a humble community. We also take it seriously by being an accommodating community. So let me explain that. Let's reread verses 5 to 7. Whoever receives, this is Jesus continuing on, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's, it is necessary, or the, the, word, the sense of the word is more like, it is inevitable that t- temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So it's interesting, when we stop thinking about being the greatest, and so we, we take on this humility of a child that Jesus is talking about, we start to view each other differently. Through this, this new lens, we start to view each other differently. So we, we stop eyeing each other we stop asking, why is that guy getting all the attention? Instead, in the, the economy of the kingdom, right, we begin to serve each other. If you want to be the greatest, you have to become the least. And so what ends up happening in that kind of community is we stop asking, how can I be a better follower of Jesus than that guy? And we start asking ourselves, how can I make it as easy as possible for him to follow the Lord? How can I link arms with him to carry his burden as he follows the Lord? Our whole posture shifts toward one another. Jesus has subverted the system. In competition, we desire each other's downfall, right? Because someone else's downfall is my W. But in the kingdom, we desire each other's good. In competition, we benefit from our friend's failure. In the kingdom, we benefit from their growth. And so Jesus launches into this discussion on receiving little ones. And and I think at this point, he's talking about way more than kids. I think he's talking about receiving people, would-be disciples, people who desire to follow the Lord. He's talking about receiving people who have just as little to give as we do. The unfortunate reality is that the church has had a long reputation for making it really hard to follow Jesus. Harder than it needs to be. There are some obstacles, and some of them are necessary. But there's a bunch of unnecessary obstacles that we as Christians have too often put in front of those who would otherwise be following the Lord today. So I'd like to tell you guys about something called the face tattoo test. The face tattoo test. So I used to work at a nonprofit organization called Love, Inc. We actually partnered with them as a church. We're doing stuff with them this month. Loving is a Christian nonprofit, and so when we would be gathering information from people who wanted to, to get services, we would ask them questions to try to get at least a little bit of a feel of their relationship to the Lord. And so one of the questions that we started to ask them is, 
are, are you connected to a church? If they said no, then we would ask them if you want to be. Is that something you're interested in? And every now and then we get folks who would say yes. So we kind of had this gr- growing population of folks who wanted to be connected to churches, and so we developed something called the Church Connections Ministry. And very early on, we learned a very hard lesson about the Church Connections Ministry. It was, it was apparently going to be way tougher than we ever realized. And the reason why was because not every church in Lake County was prepared to receive the people who were coming to us for help. Very few were the kind that would welcome the sorts of people we were working with. So, for instance, when you're living in an intense generational poverty that you've, you've never known anything different, it's a lot like a crisis mentality. Everything is urgent. And so, you know, folks in, in the Church Connections Ministry, they'd get stood up a lot. You know, they'd get blown off, or the person they were meeting with would, would be wildly late. And, and they would want to literally cut off the entire relationship as a result of that. Just like, I, I can't waste my time anymore on this person, right? But one particular instance came up. There are a number of different things that came up with a, a number of different churches, but I'll give one example. One particular woman, she was a single mom of a couple kids. She had actually started to heal things with the kid's father. A lot in her life was coming together. She was putting the pieces back together for for from her past, but there's one thing from her past that couldn't go away, and that was this face tattoo. She had this face tattoo, and it was actually pretty startling when you, when you met her. She was very prominent, kind of aggressive. And so she had, had this, this one thing. It was the first thing that you would notice about her. We did her intake, and, and she expressed she wanted to pursue the Church Connections ministry, so we got her hooked up to somebody in a local church named Matt, and he was awesome. He instantly started discipling her and her husband, or, uh, her, her boyfriend at the time, but the, the kid's father, and they started, like, making some progress in the faith, and finally she was like, hey, can I come to your church? And, and Matt called us after she visited, and he was a little bit distraught. She walked in and was functionally ostracized. Folks were willing to stare, but they weren't willing to talk. And after a couple minutes of realizing that she was not going to have a meaningful conversation that day, she basically just sat down in, next to Matt and his wife and just tried to suffer through the service, and then get out of there with as few people seeing her as possible on her way out. So Matt called us, and he just said, like, my church wasn't prepared to receive her. They weren't ready. And so after that moment, we, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, we called it the face tattoo test. The staff at Love, Inc., we began to work through some of the churches that, that we had on our, our partner list, and, and we started eliminating any for the Church Connections Ministry, we started limit, eliminating any that couldn't pass the face tattoo test, and it was an alarmingly short list that remained. If we take Jesus seriously, if we take sin seriously, then we should pass the face tattoo test with flying colors. We should want nothing more than for people to walk away from a life of sin and walk into the way of the kingdom. Now, there are reasons to reject people from our community. We'll get to that a little bit next week. But those reasons are very, very few. Most importantly, we should never be the reason why someone rejects Jesus. We should never be the reason someone rejects the Lord. I'm blown away by how many people I meet who who were at one point following the Lord and they walked away because they were ignored or forgotten in the community. A couple of reasons that I've encountered. So some were condescended to. 
Like maybe an older believer acts like a younger believer has nothing to give just because they're newer to the faith. Maybe a believer is going through a crisis of faith. They start asking questions, and folks in the congregation evade those questions. Or sometimes they actually call the person's faith into question because of their doubts. Sometimes folks are struggling with addiction or sin, and no one steps up to help them in any way except to condemn them and gossip about it behind their back. These things happen. And then sometimes, sometimes, someone walks away from the faith because they're among God's people. They are led into sin. They cease to take Jesus seriously because the church they were a part of didn't take sin seriously. And Jesus says that when this happens, the person responsible has essentially sided themselves against the kingdom. They have like taken up this role where they are trying to keep the rule of God out of that person's life. They have sided themselves against the kingdom. And so Jesus says that it would be better for us to have a millstone tied around our neck and for us to be drowned in the depths of the sea than to go on unrepentantly casting people out of God's kingdom. And I know that we can't always be aware of what's going on. God is gracious. I get that there are some things we just can't know. But that doesn't eliminate the call on us as a community. We should be a church that receives people. And the word that Jesus actually uses there, receive, you should receive people. It's the same word that we would say, like, to receive somebody into our home. The picture is one of hospitality. The idea is that the church is a place that welcomes people in. We make it easy, as easy as it can be, for folks to come to Jesus by removing every unnecessary obstacle to their faith. So we take sin seriously by being an accommodating community. So at this point, some of you might be asking, yeah, but what do we do when someone is sinning, right? When someone within the community is sinning, what do we, what do? We do? We, we, like, so far, this has been, you know, kind of light. You know, hum, we got to be humble. We got to be accommodating. When are we going to talk about getting people, right? I'm, I'm being uncharitable. Like, when are we going to talk about, you know, talking into the lives of other people? And the answer is there is a place for that. If there's a disciple who's in sin, then, yeah, our responsibility is to call them back. But there's something that Jesus thinks we need to think about first. Before we can ever talk about bringing someone back into the fold, or calling someone's sin out, there's something that needs to take place. And it's this. We take sin seriously by being a self-reflective community. So verses 8 and 9. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So before Jesus even broaches the topic of how we call each other out, he says that the process has to start with us. So it's worth thinking about how Jesus frames this up. Like, the the way that Jesus wants to motivate us to address our sin is is through self-preservation, Right? He is saying that if you do not eliminate sin from your life, you are endangered. That it would be better to enter life crippled or lame than for you to enter whole into the hell of fire. And and so it's kind of interesting for me to think through some of this. Because oftentimes when we do sin, 
we do it because we think we're going to get something out of it. Sometimes we sin because we're trying to preserve ourselves. We sin because we think it will benefit us. And Jesus turns all of that around on its head. So I want to give some examples of the way that we tend to relate to some of our sinful behaviors. We tend to relate to them in this way where it's like, hey, I'm going to get something out of doing this, so let's, let's hash it out. Let's take some examples. Some of us are prone to anger. We want the world to operate the way we think it should. And so when things go poorly for us, we lash out. And this isn't just anger. It's not like righteous anger over injustice or something. It's anger because our kingdom has been violated. We get mad at other people. We assert ourselves. We intimidate. When it comes to our families, maybe we take measures to control them or to abuse them, even just verbally. And now we might never hurt them, but maybe we try and make them think that if we're pushed too far, we might. And the reason why we're doing this is because we're trying to protect our territory. Because we think, my anger is going to guard what's mine. My anger is going to guard the fairness of my life. We're trying to gain control over the world. We think anger is going to get us something. Let's take lust. There's a growing population of, of people, both men and women, who are becoming regular users of porn. Regular means once a month or more. So this is wildly common. 65% of men, 33% of women. Why do people watch porn? Or maybe it's not even porn. Let's broaden it out. Maybe it's just images or it's stories or it's, or it's ideas, film reels that we play in our head that we consume. And we're doing it because we want to use another human person for our pleasure. We make use of each other. But why do we do that? Sometimes we do it because we think, if I don't have this outlet for my sexuality, I'll become repressed, right? I'll become all bottled up, and that will be damaging to me. And so I need some sort of expression. Let's open a laptop. Or maybe we just think we'll become overcome by pleasure, or by desire, I mean. We'll just be overcome. It's all we'll be thinking about. I have a job to do. I need to make some money, so I, I need to do something to release this pressure so I can focus Sometimes it's because our curiosity overcomes us. What new thing am I going to find? And so we do it so that we can have pleasure without responsibility. Pleasure without intimacy. We try to control. We do it because we think lust is going to get us something. One more, pride or judging others. What do we get when we judge others? I think a big thing that we get is self-assurance. There's no better way to feel secure about yourself than to point out why you think someone else should feel insecure about themselves, right? And so we, we look at other people to, to point out their flaws. We assume the worst of the people around us. It's even better if we can get one or two people to do it with us. Then it's like a group activity, and we can all drive home together feeling more self-assured. We try to find the chinks in other people's armor because then maybe they'll never find the chinks in ours. We are trying to preserve ourselves. I could go on with gossip, lying, manipulation, cheating, gluttony, materialism, hate, whatever. Whichever one we choose, I think that we will be able to find a way in which we think that sin's going to protect us. We think it will get us something. And Jesus flips things Around. He says that the sins we think are preserving us are actually destroying us. The sins we think are preserving us are actually destroying us. So here's the way to think about sin. Every sin is a rejection of God's 
kingdom. It's a rejection of his rule. It's asserting our own self-rule against his. So every time we sin, it's a rejection of the goodness and the meaning that God wants us to have. And over time, it ends with God giving us what we want and withdrawing his rule from us. The sins we think are preserving us will destroy us in the end. And so because we have this idea that sin gets us something, when we start addressing our sin, guys, it's going to often feel like we are losing something. It's going to feel like missing out to fight our sin. Addressing our sin is going to hurt like nothing else sometimes, especially if you spent a lot of your life denying it. It will feel like amputation. This passage is here to tell you that it is not worth it to keep the appendage. Chop it off. Jesus is offering you life. He's offering you a new you. He's offering you new creation. He's offering you himself. So do not miss out on life because you are too afraid to miss out on sin. I think the first step for those of us that 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 describes is confession. Don't do it alone. Go to your brothers and sisters and tell them and let them walk with you through the process of repentance. And that goes for every one of us. This is a responsibility that we share as disciples. We take sin seriously by being a self-reflective community. And then finally, what does it mean? What does it look like for us to notice that one of our brothers or sisters is following after the way of sin, that they're walking away into behaviors that are against God's kingdom? What does it look for us to call them back? And it looks like us being a pursuing community. Verses 10 through 14. See that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So in the same way, it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So here's how Jesus is imagining the church. He's picturing it as this group of people who are so awakened to the destructiveness of sin that we become like each other's shepherds. We care for each other like shepherds. And so we go out of our way to never lose one of the fold. So the images of the shepherd who has a hundred sheep, like if you have a hundred sheep, you're doing pretty well for yourself, right? Like you can probably afford to lose one. You're going to be all right. But no, instead the shepherd, the, the one sheep goes astray and he leaves the rest of the flock to go trudging over like mountainous foothills to try to find this one sheep. And when he finds it, there's celebration. And that should be the attitude that we have toward each other. We should be a community that never stops pursuing each other in love. Jesus makes a point to talk about how this shouldn't just be for members of the community that are very visible. It's like, oh man, we cannot afford to lose that guy. Let's all talk to him about this behavior that he, that he has because we can't afford to lose him. Jesus is saying it's got to go beyond that population. We have to feel this way toward everyone, the most invisible among us. We should not despise any of the little ones. No one is expendable. 
So this is the way that Jesus puts it. He says, I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So the, the angels of the little ones always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What does Jesus mean there? I have no idea. Sometimes, as a pastor, you just have to be honest. That, like, there's no mention of anything similar to that in the rest of the Bible or the literature outside of the Bible. So the specific thing that Jesus is referring to is lost to history. But I think we all get the point of it, right? I think we all get the point of it. The idea, whether it's metaphorical or whether Jesus is, is saying something more concrete, it seems like he's saying something more concrete to me, something more literal. But in any case, he's saying that, that every single person is represented before the eyes of God. Every single person among us is represented before the face of God. God is always watching. And there is no one he doesn't see. No one is forgettable to God. And so it is a grievous thing when one of these unforgettable people becomes forgettable to the community of the church and they begin to follow sin and walk out the door without anyone tugging on their elbow. If you're sitting here today and you have been walking in sin, no matter how long you have been wandering, this is God's posture toward you. Come home. God can't wait to celebrate you coming home. And that doesn't ma- it doesn't matter how long you've been digging in your heels. It doesn't matter how prideful you've been up to this point, how defensive you, you've been, how, 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 how you've defended yourself through criticism to try to deflect blame. All that doesn't matter. All is forgiven in the cross. It doesn't matter how long you've been apathetic. It doesn't matter how long you have denied that something about you needs to change. Forget it all. It is better for you to walk crippled into life than to go whole into hell. God, God's love for you is not exhausted. He can't wait to celebrate you coming home. So come home. Why wait? What has sin gotten you except death? For those of us who want to be a pursuing community, that should be our attitude too. We should be people who can't wait to celebrate the return of lost sheep. So in order to be a community that takes sin seriously, we have to be a humble community, an accommodating community, a self-reflective community, and a pursuing community. So when many of us think of, of what, this, what, what, this, what would this look like as a church to take sin seriously, I think here's the image that gets populated in most of our minds. It's kind of like Puritans from a Hollywood movie, right? Just like high collars, and I don't know why there's buckles on our hats, but there's buckles on our hats, and no one is having fun, right? It's just a joyless, mirthless community of people who only ever talk about what's wrong with each other, right? That's kind of the image that gets populated in our mind. I've seen churches like that. I mean, they haven't worn buckles on their hats, but they've been puritanical, which is why I think it's important for us to remember how this whole passage started. 
with a humble child approaching the king. If we become the community Jesus is talking about, it's not going to be because we were legalistic. It's not going to be because we were joyless or obsessed with all the things we stand against. We will become this kind of community because we will be overflowing. We may take sin seriously, but if we're following the way of Jesus, it won't be the thing that occupies our minds the most. We'll think about it. But the thing that, we'll, that we will be overflowing with won't be sin. We won't just be against sin. We'll be against sin because we are for the Lord. We will be against sin because we so desire his kingdom. We will want the Lord more than anything. We will want him for ourselves. We will want him for each other. We will long for the glory of God to be known in our lives and in our neighbors' lives and to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That is the kind of community that takes sin seriously in the right way. It is a community that overflows. It is overflowing with praise and gratefulness for the gospel to the point that sin becomes suffocated. It is a community that is overflowing with the love of God for hopeless sinners, the inexhaustible love of God. It is a community overflowing with hope because we know that no one is too far gone. It is a community overflowing with grace because everybody is invited home. In that kind of a context, a context shaped by the love of God shown on the cross of Christ for sinners— when we take sin seriously, it's going to look differently. And I actually believe we'll take it more seriously. I was part of a community, I'm going off book now, which is dangerous because I'm a verbal processor, so this might be a disaster. Bad way to end a sermon, Mike. Don't verbal process at the end. Anyways, so I was once part of a community like this. I was part of a community that, that just could not stop talking about the gospel. Could not stop talking about the grace of God that they Received In many ways, it reminds me of much that's happening here at Trinity. There's a little church I was a part of in college, and there's much about it that I see among us percolating now. And in this community, I would straight up have guys say, Mike, you love yourself too much. Man, that was scarring at the time, right? Like, like just like square shoulders, eye contact. You think too highly of yourself. And it was awesome. Because at no point did I ever doubt that Aaron, sitting across from me saying that, I never doubted his love for me. But it was so clear because of the way of life that he lived and that the others in this little church lived, that like the reason he was calling me out was because he loved me. We can feel vulnerable in a community that takes sin seriously. Many of you may feel vulnerable imagining us moving more and more in this direction. And I see this beginning to, to grow and grow among us. So I'm praying that the Lord will continue that work, but it might leave some feeling vulnerable. And I'm here to tell you that you don't have to. We don't have to fear a community that takes sin seriously. Because the, the drive that, that moves us to call each other out is the drive of love. Guys, my desire for you is that you would know Jesus and be like him. Because I love you. I love you. And I want you in the kingdom. And I hope that you love me enough that if I ever become a lost sheep, you will climb over treacherous foothills to find me.
That is a community of grace, not of legalism. It is the community of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we we first and foremost thank you for the cross. We thank you for the grace that you, you have shown us. We thank you that you are patient with us every step of the journey because we, we are like sheep. We're dumb. <laughs> we repeatedly go back to, to the dangerous way of sin and you repeatedly call us back. So I thank you for your patience, Lord. I pray that, that you would be faithful to finish the work that you started in us. We know that you are both the pioneer and the finisher of our faith. So, Lord, I pray that we would be a community that is shaped like the cross. That takes sin seriously. Because we take grace seriously. Thank you for forgiveness. So now we we approach you, Lord, to, to confess trust you for ongoing mercy that we know you will supply. Amen.